and welcome to the second episode of Disrupt Podcast's very special two-parter on the continent's fintech space. In partnership with Azure Finance, Revio, Emergo, Middle East and Africa and MoneyHash, we've been looking at the innovations that are being built, the challenges they are overcoming and the support and funding ecosystem that is driving fintech's growth on the continent. In episode one, we heard a lot about how fintech solutions are innovating for access on the continent and track the sector's evolution from its origins, also known as M-Pesa. In this second part, we'll delve into support available for fintechs in Africa, from investors, from incumbents, from governments, and look at the future potential of fintech. As we heard in the first episode, fintech is big business indeed in Africa. Earlier this year, Disrupt Africa released the fourth edition of its fintech-focused research publication, Finnovating for Africa, which placed the sector at the very heart of the continent's tech innovation space. It tracks 678 active fintech ventures, far more than any other vertical, and a number that represented growth of 18% from the previous edition of the report in 2021. The fintech sector also leads the continent for funding. Since Disrupt Africa began tracking funding in the African tech startup space in 2015, 540 fintech startups from 25 countries have raised an extraordinary 3.6 billion US dollars, three times more than any other sector. These high levels of activity and investment in the African fintech sector come as no surprise. Financial exclusion is high. Over 350 million adults in sub-Saharan Africa live cash to cash with no bank account, and the impacts of this are sizable. But why has this come to be the case? Do we blame the traditional banks? Did they fail when it came to financial inclusion on the continent? Nicole Dunn is co-founder and COO of South Africa's Revio, an end-to-end payment orchestration platform that reduces complexity, cost and risk of payment operations in Africa via a single API. She says, in the defence of the banks, that until not long ago, it would have been quite difficult to even imagine how such challenges could be overcome. But the advance of technology on the continent has changed the outlook. The growth in connectivity in mobile phone penetration has set a new foundation for what distribution and customer acquisition might look like and makes it possible to profitably serve the base of the pyramid, if you want to call it that. At the same time, I do think the banks have been very slow to change. They have excluded huge opportunities and focused on what they know and what they understand. And even today, I think, are too slow to adopt new technologies or collaborate with fintechs who are able to help them access a wider part of the market that is rapidly growing and will continue to be the largest share of the population for the foreseeable future in the continent. So I think it's a combination of really difficult structural challenges, and I'm really excited and curious around the role that new and interesting technologies can play in helping us solve for those better, but also a failure on behalf of the incumbents to really put their full weight and talent and intelligence around how we might solve for these gaps. Elizabeth Rossiello is co-founder and CEO of Azza Finance, an African fintech company offering secure and efficient financial infrastructure for payments, foreign exchange and settlement. She does not believe that African banks failed and indeed says they have a key role to play. I think the African banks have a strong role in many of the markets that we're in right now. Markets like South Africa are dominated by the banks. There's an oligopoly of the banks in the financial sector. So I don't see them as failing. You know, maybe they don't have the features that you want them to have or the UX, but they've got the power. They've got the control. Is that failure? They're making the money. So, you know, um, we just had a bank CEO in here yesterday in our offices for a several hour meeting and we were like, we need you. So I think 
it frustrates me when I go to conferences, tech conferences or startup conferences or, you know, crypto conferences. And they're like, we don't need the banks. We do. In frontier markets, we still need the banks because in a lot of our markets, the regulator requires you to partner with a bank. Shogo Ishida is co-CEO of Emergo Middle East and Africa, which invests in partners with Africa-focused enterprises, startups and accelerators to foster the development of socially impactful solutions on the Cardano blockchain. He says the relatively slow rate of digitization has held financial inclusion back in Africa, but that banks are slowly getting their acts together. We contend that the significant factor among this is the, you know, the sluggish, um, the, the, the pace of the digitization and the presence of the inadequate digital infrastructure. Um, when we examine mobile penetration rates, for example, in a different region, we observe that the sub-Saharan Africa stands at 46%, while Latin America boasts a rate of the 70%, Southeast Asia at 90%, and uh, also other developing countries like in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, and you know, the, all of them actually exceeding 80% of the, you know, uh, the mobile penetration. Um, so the, the lower level of the digital access, um, the more opportunities are slips, um, you know, through the cracks. Uh, these deficiencies in digital infrastructure have far, far-reaching consequences, uh, including delays in the bolstering, the resilience of the economic system across the world. Um, when you're talking about the, you know, uh, the existing and the traditional banking sector. Um, I think, well, actually, African banking sector has experienced a notable transformation in the recent two years. What do startups have that banks don't when it comes to quickly rolling out new products to underserved segments? Here's Nicole. I mean, I think if you look even globally, the average net promoter score for large banks compared to fintechs is just astounding, right? New bank, I think, has a 94, 95% net promoter score and the average net promoter score of US banks is closer to 19 or 20. So I think what they've done really well is to obsess over customer problems and pain points and really build for those. And as you rightly say, they aren't encumbered by legacy technology. It's very difficult to make things go fast in a bank because they have deeply complex legacy systems that have been contorted and distorted over time that it's, you know, almost an unrecognizable tech stack today. At the same time, the role of a bank is very different. It's it's really there to provide stability, security, and to manage risk. And perhaps it's less appropriate that banks go after these new, interesting, greenfield, moonshot opportunities. And that's something that a younger company uh, with agility is better placed to do. And the role that banks play in that sort of ecosystem is to come in at a point to provide things like support on compliance and regulation and to provide things like balance sheet that then uh, enable the fintechs who are really good at that front-end piece of really building for customers and incorporating new kinds of technology that weren't previously possible. Now we are starting to see increasing collaboration between banks and startups, which follows a global trend. Ahmed Aymer, co-CEO at Emergo Middle East and Africa, says fintech has moved on from wanting to replace banks to rather collaborating with them. The anarchaic idea of uh, wanting to replace all existing legacy financial systems with you know, crypto and blockchain is really a misnomer. I, I, I don't think it's a really sustainable way of, of doing that. Uh, 
crypto investors began with the idea of, you know, uh, uh, to hell with the system, to hell with everything. Let's create our own thing and let's bask in it. But if we, if we really want to integrate with financial markets and if we really want to scale and if we really want companies and states and governments to use the tools we're building, then we need to find a way to come together. And, and uh, it took a little time for this to happen because people had that attitude I was referring to you earlier, you know, from, from both sides. Uh, but uh, after the dust settled, folks started realizing that, you know, wait a minute, there is actually a lot of value we can create together. Here's Elizabeth. In the beginning, they were like, you know, haha, we'll wait you out. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, we'll partner with you, but for a $10,000 prize where you give us all your IP for a $10,000 boot camp or something, you know? And then, and then they're like, oh, we don't really know how to do this. We don't know how to run an engineering team. We don't know how to do a product delivery cycle. We don't know how to do 24-7 digital customer service support, et cetera all the things that startups are good at. We don't know how to run lean models. We don't know how to go into multiple markets with a very lean distributed team. All things that startups and fintech startups are great at. And now they're coming back. And, you know, I think hopefully we're entering the golden age of partnership. And at least that's what I was saying all day yesterday, which is, you know, if you make room for us, everybody wins. Nicole says we are getting there. There's some high profile examples like Jumo that have quite successfully worked with banks to be able to get real distribution and balance sheet to be able to lend to customers. But it's been a really difficult journey for them to get there. Uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to see more collaboration between banks and fintechs. The sentiment I'm getting from speaking to banks locally is they're much more open to it than they were five years ago. And they're really seeing the value in being able to leverage an ecosystem of technology partners or distribution partners that can reach the customers that they have historically struggled to serve or that can give them speed to market on certain capabilities that to rebuild themselves right now would just be uh, completely insurmountable. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we are at the dawn of a new era of bank fintech collaboration in Africa. Challenges around working with incumbents are then starting to be overcome. But what other issues remain when it comes to scaling fintech on the continent? Nicole says the rollout of a huge variety of payment solutions has led to fragmentation. Compared to markets like the US or Europe, where you've got dominant players like Stripe or ADN, in Africa, you've got more than 280 registered payment service providers. You've got 54 different markets, 42 different currencies, very different regulatory regimes. And so as a merchant trying to do the most basic thing, which is collect revenue from my customers, I'm confronted with an enormous amount of complexity. At the same time, I can't pursue a digital-only payment strategy because consumers are still coming online. So there's still a huge amount of cash-based or cash preference when it comes to transacting. And you really have to build the right level of trust and localization to succeed in the African market. And that's the problem we saw and got really curious around. It isn't just the payments ecosystem on the continent that is fragmented, but also Africa's regulatory regime, or rather regimes. The fact different African countries have different regulatory models is holding the fintech space back, says Elizabeth. How do you lend or how do you do foreign exchange or how do you do any regulated 
product in multiple countries, given that the regulation is so different. So it's not the actual technology that's the problem because we see web wallets all over the world. We see lending all over the world. There have been lending models that work. It's not, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel. The problem is how do you create a lending model that fits with the local regulation in 30 different markets? And the regulation, I think, is the problem because it's not that we don't want regulation. It's just, you know, not synchronized. So it's really different. So like our regulatory strategy in Senegal is very different than what it is in Cameroon or Ivory Coast even. And similarly in Uganda and Kenya, two wildly different places to have a regulated product, even though it's in the same economic union. That's, I think, really the struggle. And the continent's so big, 55 markets, it's one of the biggest, you know, most diverse continents to really capture because of that. And that's the struggle for a regulated, a regulated industry. Ahmed says there are some more enlightened regulatory regimes on the continent, but generally governments need educating on the potential of fintech and blockchain technology. Many of the central banks in Africa, especially in the countries that are more tech-savvy, um, say Nigeria, Kenya, now Rwanda, Uganda's trying as well as of late, uh, are really thinking and scratching their heads about, okay, this is really happening. How do we, how do we benefit from that? Um, we see countries like Kenya trying to impose a uh, capital gains tax on crypto gains. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the real value here is really understanding how this can be helpful for uh, uh, the business community, but also, you know, um, the normal citizen on the street. Um, so a lot of education needs to be done around this. Um, the idea of how powerful stable coins can be for international trade uh, in countries with um, uh, weakening economies can be really, really transformative. So we spend a lot of time working with folks, um, primarily sovereign entities, and helping them understand the value in this uh, with the risk associated, of course, but working really closely with them on minimizing the exposure and the risk associated with um, trade um, in that area. So it really comes down to a lot of education, um, um, and, and value creation in a way that's sustainable for the uh, B2C and B2B markets. Fixing these problems is a long-term project with multiple factors. And in the meantime, fintechs have to adapt accordingly. Regulation takes time. Politics takes time. Uh, governments take time. You know, we're not going to wait for everything to be perfect. But what we are going to do is we're going to have a different strategy in every country. And not every company is able to do that. They're not able to have a flexible regulatory team. They're not able to, to have legal teams that understand that or, you know, a network to manage their channels each place. We have been doing that since the beginning. So it's second nature to us. Um, but we spend a lot of time and a lot of people, at, a lot of headcount at the company. You know, what is the strategy for each market? Time to market can be slower then, and startups will be selective about where to operate based on a cost-benefit analysis. This means smaller markets may miss out on innovative solutions. Shogo says education is crucial as access to financial services becomes more common. Education is obviously like a very, um, the how say like a key uh, for everyone to understand how the how the economy is, uh, you know, the growing and moving and circulating uh, um, in Africa. Um, so uh, what we're actually trying to do is, and of course, you know, we, we organize, you know, uh, the, the events uh, very frequently, not only just you know, for the founders uh, of the projects, but also like, for the general public that, uh, you know, how, how the, uh, you know, the blockchain can actually influence um, 
their daily life. Um, so uh, um, I think the point is, well, you know, the people have uh, the choices, like I said, you know, uh, the previously, because if you can only just be writing a poem, like, you know, cash, uh, well, that is, uh, you know, the, the, the limiting uh, your ability to access to the finance. But if you can just open up like a digital banking or you know, crypto or even further than that in the blockchain technology itself, um, you, you could have the, you know, more more opportunities uh, that you you could be like, a kind of part of it. So then, um, I think the education is very important. You know, actually, like many universities and now trying to like provide the you know the blockchain courses. Uh, like, uh, like for example, like for ourselves, like we are partnered with the. Um, um, Universities in Nigeria, and uh, I, I frequently go to the like, universities in Nigeria to provide like, you know, much more like a you know, blockchain and technical and also like, business-wise, um, you know, the lectures. So then, um, 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 of course, like, you know, um, the the average and the median age of in Africa is and still like an 18 years or so. So then, uh, the younger generation has to like, catch up and what's happening in Africa, and then of course, see how they can actually create, you know, uh, the the like a financial or uh, the life plan that would be the really really important. As we stated earlier, fintech has become very popular with investors. Here's Ahmed. Yeah, I think the last three years, um, we've seen a huge influx of <clears throat> funding into Africa as a whole, fintech in specific, and blockchain even more uh, specifically. Um, uh, the, the, the rate of growth of uh, blockchain investment in the fintech space has grown by over 200%. And it's incredible to see the amount of money flowing into these companies. And Really, this is as a result of uh, sort of a, a, a knock-on domino effect of uh, uh, founders who've started companies and exited them at uh, pretty amazing valuations. Um, their first hundred employees have went on to create their first, second, and third companies. So we've seen uh, second and third time founders uh, really breaking into the space. Lots of funding then, but Elizabeth says, and this is true, that a couple of big outliers are inflating the overall numbers. Think Flutterwave or MNT Halam, and that investment is still insufficient. Most of the fintech investment is clustered around a small, tiny handful of companies, um, I would say, um, that have sucked up a gigantic portion of the investment. I do not think there's enough investment in the space. Um, I think there's also this bias towards looking for those younger companies. And so more experienced companies, Series B, Series C's companies really don't get a lot of funding. I mean, I'm not complaining because like when we started 10 years ago, there were no seed funds. And now there are a lot of seed funds. Now there are, you know, now we have no growth funds and we have no debt. And, you know, I think there's so much need on the continent for more investment. Shogo agrees the amount of funding is inadequate. We've been seeing like a huge surge um, in the year of 2021 to 22. So uh, um, the, the the funding into the like Web3 companies in Africa has surged 1,700%. Um, so then we, we've been actually seeing like a lot of improvement here. Uh, but I guess like a still... Um, from the uh, the global business perspective, uh, they are still facing the, the lack of information about in African products and African projects. Um, 
well, the, the African tech companies or like maybe tech media that try to uh, disseminate more decent information about their products. But unfortunately, uh, the, the not all the information has been uh, successfully reaching out to the, those who, are, um, who, who have the uh, you know, motivation to invest. Nicole says the fact most funding comes from overseas also causes issues. Capital is still largely sourced from international investors who really understand VC very well, but do not understand Africa very well. And so are limited in their ability to provide really value additive advice and to be able to understand that the timelines may look different for some of the reasons we spoke about earlier with having to build the value chain around you or the adoption of customers and really having to build that trust over a period of time. And so I look forward to hopefully in the very near future where you've got more generational wisdom, I suppose, on the continent where you've got founders who've built a business to scale and are coming back into the ecosystem as investors to really play that role of an early angel, a really strategic investor that can help businesses build better, get further faster and avoid some of the costly mistakes that many ventures are still making. We're already seeing that in some cases, with the founders of the likes of Paystack and Flutterwave, among others, making investments in the space. Often, however, funding can end up being directed into fads rather than serious business models. This was the case with the booming crypto investment a couple of years ago, which did not work out especially well. What happened in crypto is a great warning to anyone who's pouring huge amounts of capital into AI at the moment. Uh, When you follow hype and not real-world use cases, things can go badly wrong quite quickly. I do believe there's a big use case for both blockchain and cryptocurrency in markets like Africa and Latin America. I think there's really interesting use cases in capabilities like cross-border payments where financial infrastructure is just not there. And rather than building it with legacy technology, expensive technology, crypto and blockchain can enable much more secure, efficient, uh, you know, just foster financial flows there. So I definitely think there is a role for it. And there's interesting use cases as well, I think, around treasury as an example, where you've got really volatile currencies in Africa. Currency devaluation is top of mind for a lot of both individuals and businesses. And so if we can use things like stable coins as a store of value to hedge against currency devaluation in use cases like shipping and freight, uh, so that by the time the goods hit the other side of the transaction, you haven't, you know, lost, uh, you know, you haven't lost revenue due to currency depreciation. This is actually where Azure Finance comes in. Elizabeth said it was important not to get caught up in the hype of the crypto boom and place it within the context of the wider fintech ecosystem. Over the years, we have always accepted digital currencies as part of regular currencies. You know, you can go back to the early days and we talked about that and and the Bitcoin and crypto coins and digital coins were all on everybody's tongue. You know, we always said there is no such thing as a Bitcoin company. There's no such thing as a crypto company. You're a company and you can use this technology. So we are from the day one 
a company that buys and sells currencies in an effort to make African currencies more usable. And we include digital currencies as part of that. And over the years, it's been, you know, everything from 1% of our volume to 10, 15% of our volume, never really more than that. And so we kind of keep it in check and just understand that it's one, one component of the basket of currencies that we sell. Blockchain can certainly play a part in making the complex compliance processes she spoke about earlier more efficient. And it's not so much that the blockchain solves that. The documents are not necessarily moving on the blockchain, but blockchain companies are from the start fintechs and they're they're focused on this topic. So we have seen a lot of fintech companies solve this issue of the 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 documentation that has to go along with payments and also solve the issue of settlement by having integrated compatible systems. And so, you know, when there was a startup in Korea, very quickly, we had the same operating system. We were able to share information very quickly. When I work with Circle in the United States, we have similar operating systems. We have similar team cultures. We have a digitally native product. It's much easier for us to work with other fintechs. And I think there's a misnomer that it's easier because we're cheating or it's easier because we're forgetting a step. You know, I challenge any African bank to go head to head with our company in an audit to show that they have collected, stored and transferred documents more than we have. So I think, you know, what we see still today is not so much the retail adoption of crypto, but we do see a lot of wholesale buying of it and wholesale payments of it because of that reason. We also see a lot of transactions between fintechs using digital currencies. And in the last few years, it's moved away from Bitcoin and ETH more towards stable coins. I think they're just more liquid in a lot of places and it's easier to get in and out of them. Elizabeth ends there on stablecoins, which appear to be the industry's way of utilising the power of crypto and blockchain tech to smooth payments processes, while avoiding the damaging volatility that characterised the early days of the crypto revolution. We've seen really, really big importers use stablecoins, which in essence are digital currencies pegged to traditional financial currencies. So USDC, for instance, is pegged to the US dollar. so that's been really, really helpful in alleviating a lot of the pressure. Um, and then on the on the other end, um, folks who instead of keeping their money in naira or shillings or whatever local currency it is, um, have started to keep their money in crypto. Um, I was actually having a chat with a friend the other day who uh, took an Uber. Um, I can't remember where it was. It was either Kenya or Nigeria. And he had chosen um, the cash payment method by mistake and he didn't have any cash on him. And then he asked the driver if he had a crypto wallet. And Binance is very prevalent in Africa. And to his surprise, the driver said yes. And he paid him uh, in crypto via Binance. So uh, that's a testament to sort of, of course, it's a one-off, but... um, you know, that's a testament to the penetration of um, what a lot of these exchanges have created and a lot of these markets that are yearning for a means of preserving wealth uh, one, in one way, shape or form. That was Ahmed. The potential impact of blockchain in Africa then is clearly huge and adoption is also relatively high, Shogo says. 
Blockchain technology is a truly uh, innovative in nature. Um, it's important to note that uh, in general, cryptocurrencies are you know uh, often regarded as in a primary use case for the blockchain technology, and uh, it's it's worth highlighting that the South African countries are ranked uh, among the top 20 uh, in uh, in uh, you know the cryptocurrency adoption uh, in the, in in the, in the world. Um, well, we have um, we have invested, like I said, you know, fifty plus in investment, and many of them are coming from Africa. And then, uh, well, I would say that kind of half of our portfolio, uh, the finance, you know, fintech related projects, um, um, they are actually uh, the significantly contributing the improvement of the, you know, uh, the fintech, um, the 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 infrastructure uh, in the country, and also like I try to you know the connecting the uh, the Africa and the rest of the world. For example, like. If you want to transfer the the U.S. dollars uh, from United States to your family or relatives that live in Nigeria, in a traditional way, you might have to like utilize an, you know the bank transfer um, or the uh, in a traditional way of the government things like uh, uh, your Western Union or the Revolt or whatever you know you can name, uh, but. Even if like, you want to just understand like $100, and you might have to like pay like a 10 to 20% of the you know, commission fee. Uh, but when you use the like a crypto, um, you can only pay like maybe 0.2% or 2% for the commission fee. But uh, you know, it's it's the transaction is happening instantly. So then, those who are receiving those money can receive in the same day, and. Uh, uh, I, I guess you know, such kind of the uh, you know uh, the innovation could be a, you know like a significant uh, the improvement in in the, in, the, in the fintech area and especially uh, kind of from the you know uh, the benefit of the you know the blockchain. There are some issues that will slow the impact of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, but progress is being made. Regulation, policy, legal—the people are ready to embrace it immediately. I mean, you'll see that, and I'm sure you know, you know, Binance, um, many of the other sort of off the radar. Uh, exchanges are all very active in a lot of these African countries. I mean, you, you know, Nigeria, if you try to open a bank account in Nigeria, they make you sign a waiver that you won't be dealing with any crypto in and out of your banking bank account, right? However, Nigeria happens to be one of the top five peer to peer, you know, crypto markets in the world. You have these like super exclusive WhatsApp groups where uh, folks who don't know each other, um, you know, deal, deal, uh, crypto, uh, without meeting each other. Uh, you know, I, I, I say, uh, does anybody want to buy, uh, you know, X amount of crypto at this price? If someone says yes, I, uh, uh, give them my bank account, they deposit cash, uh, and I send them the crypto to their address. So, um, you know, it's it's in terms of adoption, people are, are ready to go um, and have been ready for a long time. For all the excitement around blockchain technology and the fintech space in general, the rate of development is still painfully slow, says Elizabeth. You still can't send a same day payment between banks in many countries. You won't guarantee that it moves. Not every bank in every country can do that. That to me is, you know, wild that 10 years later, we're still not there in, in some big markets. And, you know, talking to VCs 10 years ago, they were like, oh, that, this will be solved in a year. <laughs> and you're like, we're a decade in and that hasn't happened. Nicole says one barrier to uptake is trust with questions asked around whether fintech in Africa is really able to get to scale. Trust is absolutely a big issue, especially for direct to consumer 
businesses, you know, if I have very little discretionary income, I'm going to be very, very cautious about adopting new technologies that may pose a risk to that income, uh, you know, and I'll likely stick to what I know. Similarly in B2B, uh, where we've played, trust is a big issue. You've got to convince large businesses to spend time on you to convince them that you're still going to be around in a couple of years. And there's still very much a skepticism, I think, around fintechs being able to really get to scale in Africa. And I hope that's changing with some of the success stories we've seen more recently and the growing M&A activity on the continent. But trust and adoption is, is really at the forefront of the barriers, I would say. She believes the face of fintech will change radically over the next few decades. We've gone through the first wave of really setting some of that foundational infrastructure down. As I say, I think there's still a long way to go there. There's a lot of white space, even in the better funded, better known ecosystems like payments, uh, but starting to look at more sophisticated financial services, more banking as a service types of offerings. In spite of all the challenges, difficulties around building trust, incoherent regulation, lack of funding, etc., etc., African startups are still busy building a financial services ecosystem for the continent. That's what I love about this continent. You know, nobody's waiting. (laughs) Everybody's getting to it as much as they can on their own, you know, and we're, we're not just waiting around for international investment. People are just building. Now, we might not be as, as well invested as other markets. We might not have, you know, um, the luxury and the buffer to make, you know, expensive mistakes and, and be as innovative because of it. We have to be careful, you know, to pay our own way, to bootstrap our, our way up. Um, so you're not, you might not see the same level of cutting edge innovation that happens at scale in places where you can afford to go, you know, five, 10 years in an R&D cycle. So you might not see that, but, but the continent doesn't wait for anyone. And that's what I love about working on it. And I think we've seen solutions, very creative solutions to those, to those problems. A nice note at which to end there from Elizabeth. African fintech companies are innovating across the value chain, solving primarily access and affordability challenges, but increasingly innovating in other areas as well. They are also benefiting from a growing support ecosystem, which includes investors, but also corporates, accelerators and regulators. And the future looks extremely promising, both for startups in the space and the many people on the continent who stand to gain from increased access to and affordability of financial services solutions. That is very good news indeed. With that then, we draw to a close our two-part deep dive into the African fintech space. Many thanks to Azar Finance, Revio, Emergo Middle East and Africa and Moneyhash for making it possible and sharing their insights. For now, bye-bye.